Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that we can get together and fellowship and break bread and get into your word, Lord, and worship you. We pray that you would be glorified today. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would bring encouragement, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring reproof and rebuke where it's needed, Lord, because we want to be more like you. You discipline, Lord, those whom you love. You scourge those who are your children because you want us to be more like you. You want us to share in your holiness. You want to conform us to Christ and sanctify us. So would you do that today? Be with those that couldn't make it. Be with those that are sick. We pray for healing and comfort to them and their families. And we just pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and may the joy of the Lord be our strength today. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is What is a Christian? What is a Christian? You go, that's pretty easy. That's pretty simple. Well, I actually tried this topic a couple months ago, and I said, I'm going to give you a bunch of points on what a Christian is, and I wanted to go through all the scriptures that talk about and describe what it means to be a Christian. And if you remember, it was a one-point message. Does anyone remember that one point? Just shout it out. If, if you're my wife, you can shout it out too. Okay, no one listened. That's okay. Um, it was, I don't know when it was. It was like six months ago or so. Humility. Humility was the one point that I couldn't get past as the defining mark or the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. Listen to Matthew 18, 3 and 4. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't want us to have a childish faith, but a childlike faith. He wants us to have a humility that a child has, a, a humility in that they're dependent on their parent for life, for sustenance, for provision. That's what it takes to be a Christian, a heart posture of humility before the Lord. That's the foundation of being a Christian. Luke 18:9. if you want to turn there with me, if you think of two passages on humility, think of Matthew 18 and Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. It says, And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves. This is Jesus talking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. I love this parable. He's standing at a distance. He can't even look up to heaven. He's beating his chest. God, have mercy on me. Hiloskomai is the Greek word there, mercy. He's saying, God, have propitiation in my life. God, I deserve your wrath. I deserve your judgment. I'm a wicked tax gatherer. I've been ripping off my Jewish brothers and sisters to get rich, and I deserve judgment. But God, if possible, could you save someone like me? That's his humble heart posture towards the Lord. And the text says that he went home justified, righteous, forgiven, cleansed, saved. And that's the testimony of everyone who is a Christian. Does it mean you beat your chest in church that morning or at your bedside or wherever you were when you got saved? Did you react in the same exact way? No, but that is the same posture of your heart when you come to Christ. It's a humble heart saying, I can't save myself. I'm no longer the God of my life. I'm taking myself off the throne and you are now on the throne of my life. You are Lord. Whether I like it or not, you're Lord, but I am receiving you by faith and putting my trust in you. If you look at verse 17, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. It's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, self-exaltation. It's the opposite of the heart of a Pharisee. It's humility. Because those things have no place in the Christian life. There's no place for pride or arrogance or self-exaltation. They're the opposite. They're the antithesis of what it means to be a Christian. We need to be dependent on God for everything. And this isn't just the heart of someone when you get saved. This is your heart every day towards God. You have that posture knowing, I don't deserve life. Every breath you take is a gift from God. Every possession you have, every, everything you have, your life is a gift from God. And every day you have that humble heart posture. And the moment that you start sliding off into that pharisaical heart and saying, look at me, look what I've gained, look at the job I have, look at what I've done, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You need to be very careful. And so today's message actually went down a rabbit trail that I didn't intend on. I don't know if rabbit trail is a good way to describe it. But we covered one point the last time in this message, and we're going to cover another point today. So if point number one is humility, point number two is this. A Christian is someone who guards themselves from the deceitful and damning power of idolatry. A Christian is someone who guards themselves from the deceitful and damning power of riches, wealth, and possessions. It's more than riches, wealth, and possessions. Idolatry is you desiring anything above God. It can literally be anything. It can be status. It can be power. It can be money. It can be fame. It can be clothing. It can be material things. It can be anything. 
and the scripture has a lot to say about it. Jesus used the phrase, the deceitfulness of riches, in Matthew 13, 22, in the parable of the sower. And he talked about how the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 12. Those who want to get rich, the text says. What happens to those who want to get rich? If you got 100 Americans in the room, and you said, who here wants to be rich? Raise your hand. How many of them will raise their hand? Listen to what 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 12 says. Those who want to get rich, not those who are rich, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some who have longed for it have pierced themselves with many griefs and have wandered from the faith. But Paul says to Timothy, you flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Timothy, you pursue righteousness above all. You pursue godliness. People around you, Timothy, are pursuing riches. They're pursuing a love for money. They're holding on tightly to the things of this world. That's what they're holding on to. Timothy, you hold on to and grasp eternal life. You pursue Jesus with everything. That's God's message for you and I. It's not just for Timothy. It's for all of us. It's his message to America. It's his message to all of us who say, well, I'm not really that rich. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. You don't have to be rich to have a desire to have more things because Jesus tells us it's from the heart, really, where greediness and covetousness in Mark 7, 22, that's really where it comes from. It just makes it that much harder when you have all these things around you to grasp after. That's why it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter heaven. All these distractions, all these things that bring comfort and whatnot. Have you ever heard of anyone that loves paper? Kind of weird, right? Anyone love paper more than Jesus? Is that a temptation for anyone here? You tempted to love paper more than Jesus? You might be tempted to love money more than Jesus. And what is money? Money's just paper. It's not even backed by gold, I don't think. I think Paul can come up here and give us a lesson on that. I was talking with him at one point as I was putting this together. I, th I don't know the whole history of currency in our nation, but as far as I know, it's something called fiat money. They're printing a lot of it up, and it's not even backed by gold. I don't know all the economics of things and how that all works out. It's not loving paper. It's not loving paper money that we're in danger of. We're in danger of the damning power of what the paper promises. Security, safety, self-sufficiency, satisfaction, gratification, pleasure, fulfillment, happiness. That's what money promises. Paper's not bad in and of itself. Money's not bad. Possessions in and of themselves aren't bad. Houses, cars, clothes, gold, guns, gadgets, or giblets. 
I don't even know what a giblet is. I had to look it up this morning, but it just sounded like it went well right there. It's a part of a bird, I think. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. But a Christian realizes that these things are nothing compared to Jesus. A Christian realizes their worth compared to Jesus. And you know what the Bible says about all these things compared to Jesus? Garbage, trash, cow manure. I'm going to show you the verse in just a minute. You might already know it. 10,000 pounds of gold compared to Jesus? Garbage. 10,000 mansions on the most beautiful, amazing islands of the world? Trash compared to Jesus. 10,000 Ferraris, Bugattis, Lamborghinis, Rolls Royces, 4GTs, or whatever amazing luxury cars you can think of, all trash compared to Jesus. Fame, fortune, notoriety, social status, any amount of money, power, or anything of that sort compared to Jesus is trash. Here's the verse, Philippians 3.8. I could quote it every week. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost. This is a good verse to memorize. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as but what? I count them as but rubbish. Skubalon is the Greek word. It means trash, garbage, Dung, if you look it up in a Greek lexicon, it will say animal excrement. Paul's using a strong word to show his strong love for his Savior. I love Jesus so much and I value him so much that all things, everything is loss and everything is rubbish compared to knowing him. That's the mind of Christ. That's the view that you and I need to have. He says, yes, I was a Pharisee. Yes, I had the fame, the social status, the money, the accolades. I had it all. It's rubbish. Animal excrement compared to knowing Christ. He's willing to give it all up and pursue Jesus. That's not only for Paul. That's for all Christians. And it's hard to do that when you live in a place called America because we have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of things. We have a lot of distractions. And we need to be aware of that. And that's what the message is for today, that Christians are aware of the power and the deceitfulness of idolatry and riches in our lives. A Christian is someone who can see these things for what they truly are in light of Christ. There's a song that came to my mind at around 3 a.m. Before I give a message on Sunday, usually there's thoughts that I go to bed with and I'm just stewing on them all night and I'm thinking and I'm overturning different things in Scripture and Lord, show me something else that I'm not seeing. Show me something else. And it's almost a selfish motive, Lord, because I want to see it for myself. I, I want to see the beauty in your Scripture. I enjoy putting together a message because I get to see things in God's Word and get blown away 
and it amazes me, and I can just sit there in my office. I heard one pastor say, sometimes I just have to sit back and look up and worship after getting into God's word. This song came to me. It's not a song I put together, but it's a song I know of. It says, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. That's just a summation of the song. It's by the Gettys, played by Shane and Shane. Go listen to the song. It's a great one. I'm only satisfied in Jesus. Christians realize that none of these things, nothing in this world will satisfy you. You need to know it for what it's worth. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the things of this world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How does John end his epistle? 1 John, the very last verse. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. A letter all about love. A letter that tells us God is love. To remain in his love. You can count love over and over in the book. What hinders your love for God and valuing him? Idols. Guard yourself from them. Christians realize the power behind idolatry. My intention for today was to walk through the book, the book of Luke. There's so many passages in the gospel of Luke that compare and contrast humility and idolatry. The love of possessions and riches and wealth and the things of this world compared to humility. You have the rich young ruler, you have the rich man and Lazarus, you have the only gospel that mentions that Jesus was born in a manger, there's no room for him in the inn, here's this humble savior and Mary proclaims in chapter one, I'm a humble bond slave of God, who am I that I'm going to bring the son of God into the world, humility from the very beginning to the end, the crucifixion and so forth and Luke is just showing over and over, this is a humble savior born from a humble woman, from humble beginnings. And if you want to follow him, you need to be humble. And this is what keeps people from following Jesus. This is what keeps the rich young ruler from following Jesus. This is what kept the rich man out of heaven when Lazarus was there begging underneath the table. Jesus says in Luke, you're not willing to be my disciple unless you take up your cross and follow me. And more than that, you need to be willing to sell all your possessions. He actually doesn't say willing. He just says, you need to sell your possessions if you're going to follow me. But then you look through the book of Luke and Matthew leaves the tax booth and Jesus is at his home. Jesus doesn't say, sell your home and walk the streets with me. Zacchaeus gives up half of everything he owns. He pays back four times to those he's defrauded. Yet Jesus goes and eats in his home. You have to balance all these scriptures out, right? I'm not saying leave here today, sell everything you have and go be a beggar. But I'm saying you could be holding on too tightly to the things of this world and they're hindering you in your walk with the Lord. You could have idols in your life and think you're good because you have Jesus and you have his word and you have the church. And so you have to be really, really careful. And that's what I want to talk about today. Passages that warn us. Passages that tell us to be careful, to take heed, to beware. 
This is so important. We live in America. It's a place where where you work and what you have and who you know and how you look and what kind of car you drive and what kind of house you have and how much money you have in the bank and what kind of retirement can define you more than your Christian faith. And you can join in to what I call the rat race of superficiality. I thought maybe I'll write a book someday. The rat race of superficiality. I don't know. It just came to me this morning. You can steal it if you'd like. But it's so superficial. Are are any of us real anymore? Are any of us open? Are we transparent? Are we willing to open up our lives to each other? Or are we so busy accumulating stuff for ourselves that we don't have time for anyone else? It's a cultural bubble we live in. We're one of the richest nations that this world has ever seen. Sometimes we have to be put in our place. We need to go to a third world world country. We need to live with them. We need to eat rice and beans for a couple days. We kind of joke with my son that we're going to send him off to a place like that just for a week or two, just so he'll be thankful for what he has here. Because Jesus loves us, he wants us to see it. He wants us to examine our lives. He wants us to see if we have anything in our lives that is hindering us from following him. You say, how do I know if I have an idol in my life? You're you're saying it's subtle and you're saying it can creep up on you. And how do you know? If something's keeping you from God's word, keeping you from praying, keeping you from fellowship, keeping you from an obedient life in him, that's a good test. That's a good test to lay out in your life. Another way is to cry out to God and say, Lord, show me. Psalm 26 Several other psalms, that's what David says. Show me, Lord. Reveal to me. Is there any hurtful way in me? Test my mind. Know my heart. Search me, God. I'm laying it before you. And now guide me, direct me, lead me in the path of righteousness. So my goal was to walk through the book of Luke. We're not going to have time today. I want to focus on one passage and then springboard from that passage to do a little bit of a history lesson through the Old Testament. Luke chapter 12 Verse 13 through 15. And since I'm turning there, I'll just read Luke 14:33 real quick. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That's a bold statement from Jesus, and there's many like it in the book of Luke. It at least should cause you to pause and examine and say, okay, Lord, Luke twelve thirteen, And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What I love about Jesus is he always cuts to the chase. He reads men's hearts. He knows what they're thinking. He, he, this is what you guys really need. Forget the inheritance. Watch and guard yourself from every form of greed, covetousness. Planexia is the Greek word. It means a desire for more. And it's the same word used in Mark seven twenty one and 22 when Jesus said it's from the heart that comes 
Planexia, greed, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality. Colossians 3.5 tells us that greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. When we think of greed, what do you think of when you think of greedy? I think of like a Wall Street tycoon dressed up in a suit and tie who's just ripping people off for money. And it's just all about money. But you can be greedy for anything, as I already mentioned. You can be greedy for whatever. Fame, fortune, possessions, accolades. You can be greedy that you want to have better looks. You can be greedy that you want to have more of an intellect. And you're just so angry that God made that person over there smarter than you. That's one that I'm tempted with. Why is that person so smart? You know, they can memorize like all these books of the Bible and they know the Greek and the Hebrew and they're just such amazing preachers and theologians and they win like 10,000 people to the Lord and they baptize like 50 million people or whatever it is. Okay, I'm being facetious, but it's like, I want that. And God's like, you're greedy. You can be greedy in the ministry. You can be greedy for church stuff. And so what does Jesus say? Guard your heart from every form. Christians need to realize this, and that's what that word there when it says beware. It actually means see with your mind, if you look up a Greek lexicon there. See it, know it, be aware of how deceitfully powerful idolatry and greed in all its forms can be in your life. So he says you need to be on guard. It's the same word used in, I believe, Luke 2.8 where the shepherds were on guard guarding the sheep. They're awake at night. They're making sure the lion and the bear and the wolf stays back and they're ready to fight. They're on guard. And God's saying, Christian, be on guard. Watch over your heart. Make sure there's no form of greediness in you. Proceed with caution. When I think of the word beware, think of a beware of dog sign. Some of you are animal lovers, cat lovers maybe. I'm not much of a cat person not even that much of a dog person. It's weird, right? You're a man. You, aren't you a dog guy? And it's like, I pet dogs and they're cute and cool. I don't have dogs myself. And I was actually in a hospital the other day and they had one of those therapy dogs and it was just running around the halls and the lady just, oh, he's so cute. And he was like running up against me. And I'm like, we're in a hospital. Like I'm not against therapy dogs, but people just love their pets and that's totally fine. I get it. And so but the point of what I'm trying to say here is if you see a beware of dog sign and you look over and there's a pit bull and there's a Rottweiler and they're barking at you, do you just hop over and pet them and see how they're doing? You be beware. The sign is there for a reason. Take heed. If you look over and see a Chihuahua, you're probably going to be okay. Some Christians view the beware the, the warning passages of greed as if it's like a chihuahua. That's my illustration. It, I'll just proceed. It's fine. It's not a big deal. No, you need to be aware. You need to take heed and you need to realize what's on the other side. You need to realize that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? You need to put a guard on it. I'll talk about the Israelites for a little bit. The Israelites. Remember God? He said, I will satisfy you. He brings them out of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea. He feeds them manna and quail and water from the rock. And he says, I'm going to bring you into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. I will satisfy you. Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. I will give you great 
and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, you shall eat and be satisfied. God says, I'm going to blow you away. This is what you have to do. Trust me. Okay? Seem like a good deal? That's it. Trust me. Follow me. Be faithful, and I'm going to blow you away. Vineyards, olive trees, houses, cisterns, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be amazing. Trust me. He says at the end of the verse, watch yourself. King James, beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That's the word for every Christian. God says, trust me. You were once a slave to sin. You were a slave to the devil. He had you in the power of his hand and I set you free. You're in the wilderness now. It's called life and the promised land is heaven and you haven't entered this rest yet. You haven't entered his rest yet and he says, trust me. Don't forget me. Don't get distracted by the path and the things along the path and the riches and the wealth and the possessions and whatever, it el- whatever else it may be that you're going to look after, after and that's going to cause you to forget about me. Don't do that. Warning, beware. And some Christians say, I don't need to read these warnings. I don't need to heed these warnings. It's for someone else. It's not me. Don't you see? I've been a Christian for many years. I'm good. I'm stable. These things don't have a pull on my life. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to join me. I turned right to the page. Well, I love when I do that. That's cool. 1 Corinthians 10. I was just going to summarize it, but I think it's so important that we read the first 14 verses or so. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, Don't be unaware of this, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and into the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as an example for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction, our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with each temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. How powerful is idolatry? Well, what did the Israelites see in their day? 
ten plagues on Egypt. Red Sea parted. God's glory all around them. God's miraculous power all around them. A pillar of cloud that led them by day and a pillar of fire that led them by night. And then what did they do when they got to the wilderness? They became idols, idol worshipers. They grumbled. They complained. They became greedy. We want to go back to Egypt. We want the food that we had in Egypt. It would have been better off that we just died there than out here. How quickly they turned from God and trusting him to those things. And some say, well, did they really trust God? And it really seems like Paul's trying to make that point in the first five verses. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and into the sea, and they, they even drank from the spiritual drink. They drank from the same spiritual drink. And what was that spiritual drink according to verse 4? The rock was Christ. They're drinking from Christ. Yet God was not well pleased and he laid them low in the wilderness. And some say, well, does that mean that like they went to hell? Does that mean that, you know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? But what about here? But this is before Christ and these are God's chosen people. It says, do not be idolaters. When you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, don't be deceived. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This should give us a big pause a big beware, take heed, be careful that you don't go down that same path. If you read chap- Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 in the context is this same thing. It says they did not enter into God's rest in the promised land because of unbelief. So three times in Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer says, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. They hardened their heart. They didn't enter his rest. Don't harden your heart. And in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, he says, take care, brethren. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But this is what you're to do. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's talking to brethren. Take care, brethren. I think that's, are you, are you part of the brethren? Then I, I would take heed to that warning because that's what that word means. Take care, take heed, beware. Hebrews three twelve. Serious warnings. New King James says in Hebrews three twelve, beware. Same word, beware. The Israelites did not heed God's word. He warned them over and over again. I'm right here. I want to satisfy you. Trust in me. I've given you enough evidence that I can come through. If I can part a Red Sea, I can provide water. I can provide for you. So God's anger, it says God's anger was kindled against them. His wrath was upon them. This is serious, serious stuff. So why does God want us to know about the Israelites? so that we won't practice the same things as them. That's what the text says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 6 and verses 11. These things happen as examples that we wouldn't crave the same things they did. It's for our admonition. The Greek word in verse 11 where it says instruction, it's also translated a warning. Warning, admonition, and instruction. So you don't go down the same path. So if anyone's preaching to you, oh, that could never happen to you. Did you walk the aisle? Did you raise your hand? Have you made a profession? That's, that, that will never happen to you. 
Take them to this passage. Take them to the warnings. The warnings are sobering reminders that we need to stay on the straight and narrow. And because God loves us, he warns us. Because God loves us, he disciplines us so that we'll share in his holiness. And so therefore, we should actually love these warnings. We should say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the beware of dog sign because I was about to open that fence and this pit bull was about to attack me. So I thank you that you gave me pause to not go there. If a two-year-old's wandering in the backyard and they see how fun that swimming pool looks, aren't you thankful there's a guardrail around that if you took your eyes off and you're cooking something in the kitchen? Aren't you thankful that hopefully they're protected from that? And that's how we can be. We're like a two-year-old wandering around through this world going, oh, that, that's going to satisfy me and that's going to fulfill me. And, and God's saying, I need to put up guardrails so that you don't fall and so I, that you don't get destroyed. Be thankful for the fences and the guardrails. You know, sometimes we as Christians can be like a stubborn sheep. I just want to go see what's out there. I just want to go, why, do, why does the shepherd and I don't know that they're thinking this, but maybe a stubborn sheep would think this. Why does the shepherd just want us to stay in part of the pack? I mean, look at the beautiful countryside. Look at on the other side of that mountain. The grass is probably greener over there. I just want to go see what's over there. Maybe that will fulfill me. The shepherd knows what's on the other side. And us as stubborn sheep, we think we know at times, especially when we were younger. Especially when we were younger in the faith or even before that, I remember growing up and my mom's like, no, you don't want to do that. Nope, you're not going to that party. You're not going to this thing. And I'm like, you're just, you just don't realize, you're just so boring and, you know, you just want me to sit at home and twiddle my thumbs all night, like, and you want me to be a Christian and follow the Lord? And looking back, it's like, wow, she knew what was on the other side. She was protecting me. She was guarding me, and now I'm thankful. And we need to trust the Lord that he knows better than we do. A couple more lessons from the Israelites. We're told in Exodus 12, 35 and 36 that when they plundered, they plundered, it says, the Egyptians. The Israelites plundered the Egyptians. Many of you know this. They took gold, they took silver, and they took clothing. God said, when you leave Egypt, you're not leaving empty-handed. I'm sending you away with gifts. I'm sending you away with favor. They're going to give you their gold. That's amazing. So they took this gold, they took this silver, they took this clothing. They have this tremendous victory. You read Exodus 15, it's this beautiful song. They're singing out to the Lord, victory. God has saved us from the Egyptians. They're standing over the water looking at the Egyptians drowning in front of them. And they were living in America in 1400 B.C safe, secure, independent, God's favors upon us, wealthy with all the gold and silver we just got, what could possibly go wrong? We're on, a, we're on our way to the promised land and nothing could stop God from getting us there and nothing we can do can separate us from getting there. Perhaps they were saying something just like that. What does God do? He tests them. Exodus 15, 22, it says they went three days and there was no water. God's saying, I'm going to see what's really in your heart. You're praising me for the victory. You're thanking me for the gold and silver. Do you love me? 
Are you going to stay humble before me? Are you going to still trust me during the difficult times? And what did they do? They grumbled. They became greedy. They complained. And God laid them low in the wilderness. It's amazing. How could they go from right there? The, the water was just parted in front of them. Like they just saw all the miracles and now they're grumbling and complaining. And God says, yeah, that's you, Christian. That's you. And you need to read this and be reminded of it. And you could say, I know the story and, I, and you, need to, you need to continue to go back to it and say, Lord, help me to not have that heart. Help me to stay humble before you. No matter where you bring me, Lord, help me to remember that you're with me and I trust you that you're going to provide for me. Can Hebrews 10.34 be said about you? Could Hebrews 10.34 be said about me? It says, you accepted, second part of the verse, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. That's a tough verse to swallow, isn't it? How many of us, when the government comes for your home and your cars and your money, do you give the keys over and your possessions and say, thank you, Lord, I have joy because I have an abiding treasure in heaven. How hard would that be for you and for I? You say that could never happen. We're in America we have the biggest, strongest, most amazing military in the world. We do have an amazing military. It's not really going down a great direction with the leadership of our country, but God has spared this country from many, many perils throughout its history. Many wars that we've fought and won, and we have so much to be thankful for. But don't think for a second it can't all be taken away from us overnight. Just look at Christians all around the world. Look at Christians in China. Look at Christians in North Korea. Look at Christians who are gathering, probably as I speak, underground somewhere under the, with a candlelight, breaking open the word of God and bread and just praying that they're not persecuted or martyred for their faith as they're speaking of Christ. We have to remember these things. That's what being a Christian means that you have the mind of Christ. You have the big picture. You're not just set on the here and now and you're able to get outside the bubble that you live in and realize there's a whole other thing going on in this world. So what if God tested the American church the same way he tested the Israelites and he led us from, from prosperity into a time of famine? How would we react? You need to ask yourself that question because you say, do I have any idols? This is sobering for me putting together this message. When I moved up here from California, and I was going back and forth on whether I should mention this or not, I might have before, but I had a, for me, it was a nice house in California. A lot of people moved to Idaho because maybe the mortgage is cheaper or rent's cheaper, or you could get more land, or I had a nice house. I had a really low mortgage, five bedroom, three bathroom house, and I said, when we got it, and a little bit after, I think I could give this up. You know, this doesn't have any pull on my life. It's just a house, you know. We didn't even really get to choose it. And there's a long story behind it. The city teamed up with us and I wasn't making a lot of money. So it was a low-income house and we didn't even know that program existed. But here's a five-bedroom, three-bath house and your mortgage is under $1,500. And we're like, 
it like fell out of heaven. We're like, thank you, Lord. But maybe I would have chosen another house or something. It was still really nice. But then the Lord said, okay, go up to Idaho. You need to go up there and serve the church. I said, Lord, are you sure? He said, yeah. I said, Lord, okay, but the house, you know, it's an, it's, it's not like a mansion, but it's a nice house. I, I don't know if I want to give this up, Lord. No, go up to Idaho. And by the way, you don't have enough money now to buy a house in Idaho. You're going to have to rent. Okay. And, and by the way, you're going to rent a house. It's rents about 500 to seven or $800 more than your mortgage in California. And I'm going to get you a job that doesn't pay as much as the one that did down here in California. It pays like half as much actually. Oh, okay, Lord. Okay. Being honest with you, there was many nights where I'm like, okay, this is stupid. This is foolish. This isn't wise financially. What am I doing? But by God's grace, he was able to show me the big picture and show me that maybe I'm just holding on to things too tightly and I need to be willing to give them up. And guess what? He's still showing me that today. What if he says right now, what if he appeared and said, Nick, what if I heard his audible voice, Nick, take your family and move to a third world country and go be a missionary and give up the house that you have and the cars that you have and go trust me. Yeah, there might be a famine over there. Yeah, you're going to be eating rice and beans. Do you trust me? And so I have to ask that same question now. And I think you all need to ask that question as well too. Lord, am I holding on to you tightly and the things of the world loosely? Or am I holding on to these things too tightly and not holding on to you as I should? Very sobering questions that I think we need to ask ourselves. Last text for today. Exodus 32, 1 through 5. You know, as I was putting this together, I thought of the rich young ruler and I thought of how Jesus said, I want you to have true joy. I want you to have true satisfaction. Sell everything you have and follow me. And what does it say as you're turning to Exodus 32, if you're still with me? It says he walked away with his head down because he, he was very wealthy. And being honest again, if I was to give up what I have, which is not that much compared to most people, would I walk away with my head down like him? Or would I realize that's the path to joy? That's the path to true satisfaction. And we can think like that. Man, if I had to really give something up, man, I would, I would, I would do it, but I would be bummed out, you know? I would do it for the Lord, but I'd be depressed and I'd, I, it would just be a huge trial the rest of my life. When I think what God's trying to tell us is if you trust him and whatever he's calling you to do and you give it up, that's true joy. That's true satisfaction. That's true fulfillment. And he's trying to get us to understand that. But we're stubborn, just like the Israelites. Exodus 32, 1 through 5. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears, and 
and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. We're going to feast to the Lord. We're going to feast to God. We're going to have our cake and eat it too. We're going to have our golden calf and maybe we'll even call him Yahweh. See, here's Yahweh that saved us out of Egypt. Where did they get the gold earrings? Weren't they, I asked Leah yesterday, I go, do you think they, the Israelites were rich in Egypt because they were slaves and they were, you know, they were just crying out to God, spare us because we pretty much want to die. We're just slaves here building, who knows, the, t- the pyramids or whatever. Who knows how those got there. But where'd the gold come from? They plundered it. It was a gift from God. The gold was because of God's favor on them, and now the gold has turned into a curse. And this just showed me, God saying, you live in America. Yes, you have gold. You have riches. If you live in America, you're more rich than pretty much anyone on the planet. And he's saying, it's a blessing. Remember that it's a blessing, but also remember very quickly it can turn into a curse. And very quickly it can turn into an idol. And once again, here's another passage that he's showing us what can happen when we turn to idolatry. And you know the story, 3,000 of them died on that day, many more in the days to come. And if you read verses 19 and 20, when Moses gets down that mountain, and who's Moses a picture of, by the way? He's a picture of Jesus. And it says he delayed his coming. And in Peter, it says that Jesus, many will say, oh, he's delayed his coming. So Peter says, what kind of person should you be? You should be seeking him all the more. You should be living a holy life and you should be spreading the gospel. They're doing the opposite. They're greedy, idolatrous, living for themselves. So Moses comes down that mountain and how's Jesus coming back? Eyes with a flame of fire, riding on a horse with wrath. And Moses comes down this mountain with the wrath of God. He throws down those tablets and he says, where's this golden calf that you guys are dancing to? And he grounds it to powder and he puts it in the water and he says, you're all going to drink it. You guys want to sin against God with idolatry? You'll drink your idols and you'll die with them. People want to pass over these passages. We want to know them and we want them to transform us so that we will be holy as God's holy, so that we'll tremble before him and so that we'll trust him no matter what we go through. In closing, as I mentioned, David cries out to God in the psalm, search me, examine me, Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. You don't want to leave here condemned and say, oh, I have idols. Am I going to heaven or hell? I don't know. I'm questioning it. No, you just get humble before the Lord. Psalm 51, 17. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. If you're humble before him, the Lord saves those who are brokenhearted. Go before him with a broken heart. Leave everything behind. Give it all to him. The Bible says we're stewards. God's entrusted you with many things. He's entrusted you with the gospel. He's entrusted you with his word. He's entrusted you with a church that loves you and you're an integral part of it. 
He's entrusted you with the blessings of living in America. And he says there's a requirement for that stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4.2. It's required that a steward be found faithful. That's the requirement. With everything you have or the little that you have, are you faithful? So what is a Christian in closing? I already said in closing, but this is the real close. It's someone who says, my house, my possessions, my family, my mind, my heart, and everything I have, my life, is God's. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So satisfy me in the morning with your loving kindness, O Lord, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. That's what it means to be a Christian.